The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob M. Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob M. Ronnie. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason. That is Sue Kalinsky. Sue, what's happening? Just, you know, the usual. Working on stuff and Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Trying good. to keep trying to keep warm. Yeah, it in, is uh it in is unsunny cold. in unsunny Los Angeles. I was by the way, January the eighteenth as we record this, and we got a great guest coming up. If you've not seen the movie Past Lives, you should see it. Uh, it's available on Apple and on Prime. My favorite movie of the year, Sue, it's in your top five, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's a great, great film. And John Magaro is going to join us coming up, who is uh, one of the three leads of uh, of that movie. I, I want to let people know right off the bat, Sue, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to this channel so you won't miss any shows. And uh, by the way, at the bottom, uh, you can leave a comment, a reaction, Maybe down there in the comments section, tell us what your favorite movie of the year was, your favorite movie of 2023. Also, if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, subscribe to the show and leave us a five-star review and a great uh, uh, rating. All the reviews and the comments and all that stuff help us as we continue to grow the show. A lot of people, Sue, watching on YouTube now. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, we just surpassed 5,000 subscribers on the Culture Pop Podcast YouTube channel. Wow. So we're growing. We're growing. Congratulations to us. Yeah. Way, way to go us. Uh, so, <laughs> Sue, what do, you, what do you got going on? What's happening in your life? Okay. So, I guess it was around six weeks ago, I went mm-hmm. to get my hair cut. And okay. when you get your hair cut at my salon, there's a little closet where you take your shirt or jacket or whatever right, and sure. it up and put a smock on. Okay. So I, uh, you know, I leave and a couple of weeks later, I, I had worn this expensive down vest okay. and I couldn't find it. So I called up my hairstylist and I said, did I leave it there? And she Text me back and said, no, it's not there. And I'm like obsessed and I'm, you know, complaining to Tom. And I'm like, oh my God, it's like one of my favorite vests and whatever. So I started to retrace my steps and I called up the woman who uh, heads up my running group. She had a holiday breakfast before one of our run, after one of our runs. Right. So um, she texts me back and she says, oh, I was waiting for someone to claim it. So her vest is very similar to mine. So her husband took it, thought it was hers and, and hung it up in the closet. Got it. So last weekend, I go back to the salon and I'm wearing the black vest again. Mm-hmm. Put it in the closet. Yep. Get my hair cut. Yep. Go back to get my vest. And it's not there. Really? And I'm like, who took the vest this time? Well, I'm like, you got to be kidding. So no one took it the first time. I just thought that I left it there. Right. So, but now it really isn't there. 
<laughs> right. Like, this is, and I, you know, it, and if, 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 you know, my, my hairdresser is kind of funny. So I, you know, with that, is this like a practical joke? Cause she knew the whole story. So as I'm, you know, looking around, I keep on going back to the closet complaining. The owner of the salon says, Oh, I know who has your vest. I said, what do you mean you know who has my vest? So they had a client there while I was there yeah. who has dementia. Oh. She took my vest and left with it. So she said, yeah, I saw her leave wearing a black vest. <laughs> so now I, my, my vest is lost to a woman who has dementia. And, and I said, look, I'm not, you know, I'm not at all making fun of the fact that she has dementia. Um, but what if she leaves it somewhere and then, <laughs> I never get my vest back. <laughs> so um, they didn't call her. She had come with like a caregiver. Yes. So they called the caregiver. The woman didn't answer the phone. I said, you know, am I and, and the hair salon is in Santa Monica. It's far from me. And I said, I don't feel like driving back here. She says, don't worry about it. We get it back. I'll mail it to you. And right before I got on the freeway, she called. The woman brought the vest back. Oh, very good. So the vest has survived. I wouldn't wear it to that salon anymore. Well, you know, what, what, what does it say about my relationship with my vest? Is yeah, like true. my vest trying to get rid of me or it's like yeah, just right. not into me anymore? Right. So, uh, well, I'm glad you got your vest back. Got it back. So, um, you know, I, I was reading an article, Sue, and I decided I want to be more like Usher this year. You know Usher, right? Of course I know Usher. What am I, 90? Well, I, no, I didn't know. How can I not know who Usher is? Well, I, I don't know what your wheelhouse is. I didn't think. No, that's like, you know, that, that's like you asking me, you know, I was talking about 50 cent the other day and I was like, you mean the coin? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Usher, do you know Usher's doing the halftime show at the Super Bowl? Yes, I do know that. Okay. Oh, again, you're very touchy this morning about Usher. No, I'm not touchy. It's like, how could I not know Usher? I just, I was just checking. Okay. All right. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm very involved in mental health issues. I'm working with the LA Department of Mental Health um, in a really great partnership on uh, 710 ESPN. And I came across this from Usher. He says he is prioritizing self-care with daily meditation and affirmations ahead of his Super Bowl performance. So listen to what he says. He says, when is the last time you looked in a mirror and really looked at yourself. When you looked in the mirror, did you tell you, yourself you loved yourself? Did you tell yourself that you forgive yourself? It's a little psyched out to say this, but it made me feel good. I was like, you need to look at yourself and say, hey, whatever you're dealing with, I love you. Now, when was the last time you really, because I was thinking about this, when was the last time you really looked at yourself in a mirror? You know, Actually, not that long ago because really? I was feeling, I, yeah, I was feeling kind of shitty, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, there's kind of a running joke with me and Kathy Ladman and, and a friend of hers. When Kathy was feeling really, really crappy, he said to her, You're fucking Kathy Ladman. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I've kind of adopted that. You're fucking so, Sue Kalinsky. I'm fucking Sue Kalinsky. Exactly. But I honestly think. I don't think I've looked at myself in the mirror. I mean, I see what I'm wearing and I don't think I've looked at myself in the mirror right. in any real way. Introspective way. Uh, yes. And so 
I am going to take a little sticky note and I'm going to put it on the mirror and it's going to say, I love me to remind me to tell myself that I love myself when I look in the mirror. Now, people who listen to me on the radio will think, of course, Steve Mason loves himself. I'm really, I mean, this is just between us and on a pod. I'm, I'm a deeply insecure human being. You know that, Sue. I'm deeply right. insecure. So right. I need that little sticky note. That's great. And next to that sticky note, yes, you should put another sticky note that says, mail the Sue's Culture Pop oh, sweatshirt. Oh, no. You got me. It is sitting right there. Literally right there. I, 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 you know, I don't even think I've even seen my sweatshirt. You, I've seen you, your sweatshirt. You've seen mine. Well, but yours I've never is, seen. Yours and, is the same. It's just a little smaller size. But yeah, I, I. I don't even know if it's there. Yeah, I'll drop it in the mail to you. I've got to. I've it's got like, to. It's like you have to prove to me that you even. <laughs> that I even have <laughs> one made for you. Um, do you meditate? Yes, I do. Now, describe your meditation practice. I do TM. Oh, right. And I do it uh, every morning. So TM is where they give you a... They give you a mantra. A mantra, right. And I do it every morning. Or it depends. Like sometimes they maybe do it a little later. Sometimes if I'm like flying in the morning, I'll do it in the airport. I'll do it on the plane. Hmm. Um, And you're not allowed to tell anybody what your mantra is. Correct. So I'll tell you. You've tried to get it out of me. Yeah, yeah. And Tom has tried to get it. He said, why don't you give me your mantra? Because I want to use your mantra. I said, you can't use my mantra. Is it like schwing? Schwing. Schwing. That was so, a terrible mantra. Okay. So when you train for uh, TM, mm-hmm. they give you the mantra, right? They do. They did, and, in, a pri- and, in a private room. And they give it to you based on like your birthday, your birth year, all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, I believe so. Okay. So when I went to TM... Um, I went with somebody who looked up all this stuff in advance and told me what my mantra was going to be. And I'm like, you've totally screwed up TM for me. You told me my mantra and now it's not going to be this private thing between me and the universe. It's like a, it's like AA and Bill Wilson. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that's why TM never stuck for the Beatles were big on TM, right? They were like the the mainstreamers of TM. You know, years ago, um, my sisters lived in San Francisco for a very long time. So sometime in the 70s, I used to go, you know, always visit her. And she had a neighbor who lived downstairs, Mark, I forget his last name, but he was a real nerd, kind of goofy guy, Mm -hmm. but like, idiot savant you know okay and he used to claim that he levitated right oh come on and that was the first that i had ever heard of tm so recently a friend of mine was dating somebody who um who had done tm and i guess he just has a bad feeling about it so he doesn't do it anymore and he when he found out that i did it he uh he said to me he goes like this and I said, what's, what's that? What's this judgment? You know? <laughs> and he said, uh, so what are you, you doing it? Cause, uh, you, you think you're going to levitate? And I looked at him and I said, why are you being such an asshole? I said, no, I'm not trying to levitate. I'm just trying to find some calm and inner peace. Yeah. And, and it makes me feel good when I meditate. And he looks at me and he says, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm all right with that. And I said, oh, you're all right with that? 
<laughs> you giving me <laughs> approval to be all right about me meditating <laughs> for the reasons why I'm meditating. Get the fuck <laughs> Anyway, so um, a lot. So yeah, some people are are very suspect about TM in particular. Um, but to me, I just think it's great. Even if you don't do it, you're supposed to do it for 20 minutes. And you, I hate the supposed to, but that's kind of the way it was founded on that, that you do it twice a day. Yeah. And when I first started doing it, I was doing it twice a day and then just life, work, whatever. Um, it, you know, cause you don't want to do it too, too late because then you're kind of up, you know? Yeah. So, um, I always do it once a day, but you know, if I can squeeze in another one, you know, for less than 20 minutes, I'll, I'll do that as well. For the record, my mantra is, Schwing. Hey, good luck with that. And now you just you just broke the rule. I did. I made it up. I did not tell well, you my real mantra. I, well, I really didn't think Schwing is from Wayne's World. Yes, I Schwing. Oh, again. Now you're Do you know so I'm not allowed to ask you if you know things anymore? Well, certain things. Did you know Schwing was from Wayne's World? Of I did. Oh, okay. Jeez. Jeez. Um I I think I read an article that said the first rule, if you live in LA and you meditate, the first rule of meditation is that you tell everybody you meditate. <laughs> it's a, it's a brag, right? I try like crazy. I use this app called Headspace and, uh, it, it's a really great app, but I find it, you know, it's hard to carve out time for it. Yeah. There's a, I, um, it's called insight timer. It, which is what I use um, for my meditation. Uh -huh. So I know that it's 20 minutes or up. Like it has like, and there's different sounds you can, you can, you can use. So mine is more of like a ding, you know, it's like a light, like ding. Yeah. Um, and then it, 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 it in initiates the, the, uh, uh, the meditation and then it tells you when 20 minutes are up. Oh, so that's it. what I use. But uh, a friend of mine, I was having trouble sleeping, which mm -hmm. I have. It's kind of a constant thing, which I think I've kind of got a hold on now. Um, when I'll tell you what I've been doing. Okay. But a friend of mine said that uh, she, there is a meditation in this uh, Inside Timer app, and it's amazing. And yeah. it basically what it is is just you know you're you're lying down and. And I've done these kind of exercises before in yoga, I guess, mm -hmm. where you're um, breathing into different parts of your body. You yeah. know, it's like you go from your head to your toes. And that's basically what they do. And I've never even got past much more than that because I then I'm asleep. Right. You're just not off. Yeah. So it's great. But I've been taking um, gabapentin. Okay, gabapentin, yeah. Take three gabapentins and uh, a melatonin. And, and that's take, working for you. It's working for me. Yeah. Gabapentin's like a thing now. Gabapentin is like this miracle drug. Yeah? Because I've taken it. You're the one who told me about it. Years I, ago, I, I was am. going through a difficult time in my life. I was just, I had so much anxiety and kind of borderline depression, I guess. And um, you you asked me, what was in my toolbox? You yes. said you have to have a toolbox. And one of the things that you uh, suggested was gabapentin. Yes. And, and I took it and it was so calming. Yeah. And now I find out that so many of my friends take it even during the day. Yeah. I mean, get I, by. 
I, it's, it is one of those, it's so, you know, I'm bipolar one, one of the, one of the medications that my, uh, shrink prescribes is, uh, is gabapentin and it's made a huge difference, especially when it comes to, uh, so my mind is like constantly racing. Um, and it also has, I also have the feeling that I, if you think of a laptop with a lot of windows open, mm-hmm. I always think that's what's going on in my mind. I'm thinking about too many different things and gabapentin sort of narrows that down a little bit, allows me to, uh, to focus, but, uh, yeah, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. You know what Ireland does? Drops 30 milligrams of indica to go to sleep. Yeah, I know. I know a lot of people that do that. And but 30 I, milligrams is a lot. That's like a, lot. a bomb. I've done, I've done up to 20 because what was happening with me is that the first couple of times I took it, it worked and then it stopped working. Mm. So then I upped it and then I was like, too much. Well, right now, you know, I'm not, I'm not, Oh, any. right. Are you still dry? I'm still dry. Still <laughs> no uh no weed and no booze. No booze. And are you jonesing? Not at all. Really? No. And my friend of mine, uh, who I was working with this past weekend was uh stayed with us and he likes he's he likes he likes a drink or two or three. Yeah. And he uh he opened up a bottle of wine and it's just sitting on the counter now. And so you not tempted, not interested, not, wow, you're a new you. Not at all. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about one last thing before we get to John. Um, True Detective has come back and to HBO, the first episode, by the time this comes out, the second episode will be out. And it's fascinating. Um, I think in terms of starting out, it's as good the first episode is as good as the first season of True Detective with uh, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. Um, and Jodie Foster, I mean, I don't know where she's been. Uh, she's such a great actress. Well, um, Nyad, she was in Nyad. She was in Nyad, yeah. I mean, but those are the first two things. Nyad and True Detective are the first two things I can remember seeing her in in a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. she is so good. And then... The big story to me is uh, Callie Reese, who is the other officer that's involved. She plays Officer Navarro. And do you know her background? I don't, but she's great. She is a uh, female boxer. Oh, because she's so built. Yeah, she's so built. So she is a, she's 37 years old. She boxed. Uh, for about 15 years. She says she's not even retired yet, uh, that she could still box again. But I'll tell you what, I think she found herself because she is a great actor. She's one of the more interesting actors, I think, on that show. She's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think that's going to be, that. I think True Detective is going to be like my go-to here for a while. I don't have a lot of go-to shows right now. Do you? Um, I finished, yeah, me neither. I finished, um, a few shows. Um, you know, I, I kind of, uh, lean towards, I don't watch like a ton of comedy, which is crazy to me. Yeah. Um, I watch a lot of drama and I watch a lot of crime shows. So I just finished watching this series. Uh, it was, uh, just a limited series called A Small Light. Okay. And, and it's just the acting is just so insane. It's very, 
uh, disturbing subject matter. It's about um, Mies Gee, who um, she hid the, uh, the, the Frank family and um, distant relatives and friends. She's the one who hid them in that secret room. And she would tell me your name. Mies, M-E-I-S, uh, no, Meep, Meep. Meep, M-E- that's, I thought, that, Meep, I'm I thought sorry, it was it's Meep, yeah. Meep Gies. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's really her, it's her story revolved around hiding the Frank family. And I can't believe I don't, you gotta, we have to get the actress's name. She is, you looking it up? No. Oh, I thought you were looking it up. Yeah. Um, I was looking up Meep. I, I thought it was Meep. Okay. Uh, so it's called a small light and I am really shocked that she was not nominated for an award. Belle Powley is her name. She is so amazing. I don't know if you saw Pete Davidson's movie, um, the Staten Island. Staten movie Island? Yeah, I did see that. She played his girlfriend and I don't oh, even okay. remember her in that. She is so great. And a guy named Joe Cole and Lee Schreiber plays Otto Frank. The acting is insanely great, but she is such a standout. Where does um, it uh, stream? It was on Hulu. On Hulu. Yeah. I, so I watched that. I, and I've Fargo. Been, I, and I just finished Fargo. Oh, yeah. Fargo I'm into. Oh Juno Temple's great. John Hamm is great. Oh, my God. He's so evil. Yeah, he, he really is. He's a bad guy. Um, oh, you know what? Actually, one other thing. You, you go to see a lot of shows. We went to see MJ the Musical. On mm-hmm. a Saturday at the Pantages. Spectacular. Really? The guy that plays Michael Jackson is absolutely amazing. I don't even know where that performance comes from. It is so demanding. There is so much dancing. There is so much. It just, he kills it. Is he from the Broadway production? Yeah, he's the uh, Tony winner from the Broadway production. He's at the uh, Pantages right now. And great. The weird thing is, so Michael Jackson has all the accusations about uh, child uh, abuse. The f- audience was filled with little kids. Like mm-hmm. there were little kids, like like mm-hmm. eight, nine years old who just wanted to see the show, wanted to see the dancing. Uh, but I, it's a weird juxtaposition. Um, given the accusations and the kids, but the show, Sue, you would mm-hmm. love the show. He is a dynamic performer. I wonder how much longer it's going to be there. Six weeks. Oh, okay. And you just saw it. Just saw it. Yeah. Okay. It's awesome. It may be hard getting Tom to go with me, but yeah. What about Ladman? Get Ladman to go with. Yeah, me. maybe Ladman will go. Yeah, she'd go. She's 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 kind of crazy busy. She's doing her one woman show again at uh, in February, so she's just working like crazy getting it ready. But maybe, maybe, maybe. Where's she, she gonna go. mount the one woman show? Uh, well, she did it. This this will be like her fourth time. Because um, I saw her the f- first time. The I first think. time, and then yeah. she did it at the white white something white fish or something theater in the valley okay and then she did it in new york it was part of um uh, a solo fest and she won she won she best won? comedy she won best show oh yeah. that's great and uh and now she's doing it again uh in february but i'll find out i'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll we'll, we'll plug it yeah, yeah that'd be great that'd be great um all right so let's do this thing um you know I think this is my favorite movie of the year, hands down. Um, it's called uh, it's called uh, uh, Past Lives, and our guest today 
has appeared in films like The Big Short, directed by Adam McKay, Carol, directed by Todd Haynes, First Cow, directed by Kelly Reichardt. On television, he's done shows like Orange is the New Black, The Good Wife, and Jack Ryan. And his latest project is Past Lives. It is written and directed by Celine Song. John Magaro joins us. John, thanks a lot for coming on. We appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm really happy to be here, too. So thanks for having me. So we both love uh, this movie. Um, it's the uh, story of a woman, Nora, played by Greta Lee, who meets her long-lost friend from her childhood in Korea, Hey Sung, played by Tao Yu, and you play Nora's husband, Arthur. Um, mm -hmm. First off, congratulations. This is like a movie that everybody's talking about right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a kind of crazy ride here. You know, we, we actually premiered exactly a year ago at Sundance. Uh, so it, it, to, to start there with very, you know, little expectations and then to have such a warm reception out of Sundance and to still be kind of legging it into the end of the award season uh, has been has been really exciting. And uh, it's kind of like the little film that could. So I just want to know, like when you were shooting this, um, did you know did you know how great this was? Because I've shot things before and and I'm like, oh, this is like unbelievable. And you look at it the next day, you look at dailies or whatever, and you're like, mm, oh, I know I wish I would have done this. Or I wish I would have done that. What was your feeling while you were shooting this? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think anyone who's been involved with filmmaking has a lot of those experiences. Um and I've been doing this for a while now. There's been a lot where you're like, oh, this has uh something special in in it and and it hasn't turned out to be great there's been other things where you've had an experience and, and you say oh this is going to be a disaster and it turns out to be a lot better than it was this one i felt you know i felt like we had something strong i knew we had a good script i knew we had good people involved when well, you have 824 and, and killer films behind it you already know that you know you're in good hands but that it would uh, resonate so much with people. I never expected that. Um, I thought, you know, maybe we'll have some life at the Gotham's or like maybe the Indie Spirits when we were making it. But I, 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 I never, I just, you know, you never, this, these kinds of things you can't really plan for, especially with an indie film. Obviously, when you're making a thing like with Marty Scorsese or like Chris Nolan, you're sort of like, okay, I'm playing, I'm playing on that kind of ball field. Um, but this one, we were just setting out to make a, a, a good movie and hopefully maybe some cinephiles would see it and, uh, you know, we would take that to the bank. But this has been kind of just a totally unexpected, a wild ride. And um, I'm so happy for Celine. Because for a first-time filmmaker, that doesn't happen too much. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the movie starts on such a genius note. The the three of you mm -hmm. sitting at a bar, and we've all played this game where we speculate. I wonder what the relationship between that person or that person, their husband, wife, they've been together. You know, we've all done that. Nobody, and there are people speculating sort of in the background as they're looking at you, nobody could have possibly understood how complex this relationship is of the three of you sitting at that bar. Talk, talk about that just as a, as a start, as a beginning. Right. And, and I, I think what Celine did so brilliantly in crafting the story is taking something that actually happened to her. Now, whether 
uh, people were commenting the way they did is up for, you know, how Celine felt in that moment. But she did sit at a bar in New York between her childhood sweetheart and her current husband and feeling these two men who, who loved her and feeling these two pools from her life in Korea and her life here in America and New York City. You know, that actually happened. And she allowed that so bravely to turn into a story um, about her experience kind of finding herself and not being defined by these two men. Uh, oftentimes, people take events in their lives or true stories, but to, to, to take it and then turn it into something so poetic and, and something so profound is, is also very rare. But, but yeah, I mean, that was a real situation. And oftentimes, the roots of great drama come from real things that happen to us. So you have somewhat of a, a personal connection to this because you're, uh, you're a white guy married to a Korean woman. That's true. And, and hers was the flip of that. Mm -hmm. um, how important was it for her to cast someone like you who did have this personal connection? That's, <laughs> I can only be biased if I were to say it's very important because I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, those are those are like those magical things that happen in, in filmmaking or, or in you know any art is uh if you kind of stumble into something and find this cosmic connection which is you know kind of what the story is about but no one no one knew that you know in the casting of this um the producers didn't know that although i think at the producers had known that but probably forgot um celine didn't know that and it wasn't until after I was cast that I even brought that up. Um, I didn't want to, I thought it would be, I thought it'd be weird to bring that up while the casting was happening to be like, Oh, by the way, I'm married to a Korean American. <laughs> yeah. like it, it might come off as a sort of desperate or just, just strange. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that was never brought up, but it certainly helped me find it in to the character. And I think it was also, for me a big reason why i responded to the writing just on the initial read um you know i was reading this and i'm seeing myself on the page i'm seeing these um insecurities these uh, feelings of being an outsider that i hadn't you know seen in any characters that i played before where it was so personal to to, to what i've dealt with in my relationship and what we continue to deal with. There's just something about a mixed marriage um, where, where there's just a, a piece of your partner that you're never going to be able to fully find an mm. end to. Hmm. So, um, Celine, uh, tell me if I have this right. She had some, some rules on the set. One was you and Teo didn't meet until you actually met on the set. And then Greta and Teo never actually hugged until they hugged in the film. I, th those are such interesting decisions by a director because they created such honesty and authenticity in that, in that moment. Have you ever done anything like that in making a, making a movie? No, you know, you know why? Because oftentimes a director, because of the, the, uh, just circumstances of making a film is unable to facilitate that. Um, I remember one, once I was cast, Celine and her husband, Justin came over to my place and had dinner with my wife and I. 
And we already started talking about this idea of keeping me and Teo apart. Um, and I remember when we were ha having this dinner, you know, it was sort of like, it was like, yeah, that'd be cool. But is it really going to be possible? Just because, especially when you're making an indie film, you have one makeup trailer, you have, you know, very limited resources. So it's not easy to have, you know, a crew dealing with a million other things, try to keep actors from running into each other. Um, I mean, you know, if he's in the trailer and I go out for a coffee or, or he, you know, just happens, that's impossible. So you have to have people who are dedicated to it and, and, and willing to, to make, sacrifices and the extra effort to make make that happen so no i've never had anything like that happen before it was really cool um i think it paid off but you know we'll never know because we never did it the other way but it, it's just it's one of those fun things to do as an actor that you don't often get to do now the stuff about greta and him i didn't again i i that was a world that was separate from me i had only heard about him from greta Primarily Greta. Celine didn't really talk about it. Instead, Celine would push Greta to talk about what they were doing on the days I wasn't there shooting or the days that they were rehearsing to kind of elicit this sort of jealousy or competition between us, I think. And it worked. I mean, actors by nature are competitive. So when you feel like there's two stories going on, you just want your story. You're like, I want to be the, the actor she wants to be working with. I want, even though it's trivial, I think it led to this feeling of mystique, jealousy, insecurity that all comes pouring out in that moment that we finally meet on screen, which was the take that Celine used. Um, it's just kind of this this indefinable and uh, kind of magical thing that happens. Yeah, you know, um, you know, later on in the film, when you pick when the when it picks up on the the night that you guys were sitting at the bar, we see the rest of the scene, and Celine, her back is I'm um, not Celine, um, Correct. Um, Correct. Nora, Correct. Nora's back is Correct. is to you is to you, right? Um, for a, a majority of the conversation and she's talking to him and, and then the camera's on you just kind of like what as Arthur, I mean, did you ever think like, is she going to leave me for this guy? Like what was going on in your yes, head? As, as all Arthur that's going through your, that's that, that's what's going through the head as John, I had always seen it as, it's they, they stay together. They, their relationship is nothing but stronger for this. Uh, they see each other with fresh eyes and, and new perspective at the end of it. But as Arthur, yes, I mean, it's like living in this awkwardness and an uncertainty of, am I losing my wife? Um, that's what he's going through in that moment. And I found it funny, you know, I've, I've seen people say, Arthur knows what they're saying in that conversation. Mm -hmm. That does he or ask me, does he know what they're saying? And, and is that why he's so, you know, dour? Um, no, I don't think he does. And I certainly don't think that's what Celine intended. I think the amount of Korean he knows is what is displayed in the film. Very little. And, and he doesn't know it well. Um, 
but he doesn't have to know the language to understand this is an awkward situation and something is happening over here. And for me, also as an actor, I, I fought tooth and nail to get out of that scene. To, I, I suggested to Celine, maybe Arthur gets up and goes to the bathroom during this. Maybe he orders another round of drinks, which isn't leaving, but leaving in a way the, the scene. And she insisted that I just stay there in the uncomfort and, and, and bear it. And it obviously is the right decision. It's the hard decision to play because it is, you know, it's a desert of nothingness except jealousy and insecurity. But, you know, that's, I think, why Arthur works in that scene. Although I think Arthur's awfully patient. Last year, Ugh. I was curious, I saw a, um, uh, somebody on Instagram that I used to date and they've got a kid now. And I was like, oh, I'd be interested in catching up with that person and seeing. So I bounced it off my partner and he said, absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. And I think most people probably would have that reaction. And Arthur's just wildly patient, I think. I, I mean, was that someone you actually dated and had yes. a real relationship? Real so, relationship. So I think that's, an, you know, I, I've also heard that a lot from people or read things where they're like, no man would act this way to his partner. No, no man. I don't believe this. I don't believe that. And I do because that's how, that's how I am. That's how I am with my partner. I, I think there is a difference and people sort of get blinded by the, the Haysom Nora story into thinking they were ever in a relationship. They never were in an actual relationship. They never really dated. So when, you know, like hypothetically, if you put yourself in this situation and it was a little different with your partner and you said an old friend of mine from my childhood who we had a crush on each other, yeah. then, but we never dated, it becomes a whole different dynamic. Um, I don't understand how any modern husband, unless they were just a toxic scumbag, could turn <laughs> to look turn to their partner who says, I want to have coffee with my childhood friend, could turn to them and be like, no, you can't do that. I mean, that's to me insane. And that's just like, Everything masculinity shouldn't be. It's utter insecurity. And it's like, well, then get fuck off. You shouldn't be in a relationship to begin with. So, yeah, I think that's the difference. You know, as a woman, you know, I, I married a guy that I knew since junior high school, but we never dated when we were kids. We were, we, we became, we were friends our whole lives and didn't get married until our mid forties. But prior to my relationship with him, I was with somebody on and off for 16 years. It was a crazy relationship and he was privy, privy to it. When we broke up, it took a little while, but when I started dating my husband, I, I was friends with my ex. And he was like a little reluctant of our friendship. And I said to him, it is really a statement about me that I can be friends with him. I, I'm ending up with you. You're the one who's getting the prize here. I was with him. I have no interest. I have no connection to him. If I, if I did have that kind of, you know, if you stop me from seeing him, you would, it, it's like, I, I just don't have that connection with him anymore, you know? And, and it, and it's totally safe. It's okay. If I hated him, 
and never wanted to see him again, I would still be connected to him. I think I think that's this conversation kind of that we've gone tangentially into is an interesting thing about this film because I think it lets adults or people have adult conversations about relationships where it isn't. And that, I think for me, that's more interesting because you start to analyze your relationships and things like that and in a healthy adult way. Whereas if it was just like him versus him, that's so basic. And that's, to me, that's, that's not what makes it, that's not what would have made this story interesting. It's about adult relationships and that's exciting. Now, granted, if, if Sung were to like have moved to New York and they started hanging out a lot, I think you would have started to see a very different side of Arthur and things would have changed. But we got to remember this is for a weekend. It's mm -hmm. isolated. Arthur knows he's leaving, you know, so that's why to me, it all made sense. So the movie for me has got a very lost in translation kind of vibe to why, it. Cause it's, it's in Korean. It, uh, sure, sure. No, because it's, <laughs> it's lives in the quiet. It lives yes. in the silence. And there is a lot of, even when there is no dialogue, there is so much on everybody's face. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, that has been brought up a lot and I, I, and it obviously is, you know, it is a movie that lives in the silences. Uh, but I hadn't seen it in a long time. We were just at the AFI luncheon in LA um, Teo, uh, Celine and I, um, Greta couldn't make it cause she was working and they showed of the top 10, their, their 10 picks for the movies. They showed clips from each of them and uh, you know, all of these great movies and they showed them and then they showed our clip and I forgot how, how much silence it is. Even in our clip, it was like these pauses and I was like, Oh, it really, we really have more silences than typical films have. Um, but I think, I think that's just, uh, kind of the very similitude of, of Celine's filmmaking where in reality, there are silences in reality. People don't know what to say. They aren't constantly talking. Um, especially with both secure relationships that are time tested and, and, you know, new kind of uncertainties in relationships, which I think Sung and, and Nora are going through. Um, but what it allows for us um, is, you know, us to kind of fill it. And um, I think some of the best acting in our film is in the moments where there's nothing said because every, all three of us, I think are so present and living it and listening and, and alive as actors that there's constantly something happening underneath that Celine and our brilliant cinematographer, Xavier, were able to capture on film. Yeah, I love when directors um, keep the camera on the character that's not talking. Yeah. Um, and it, they're just listening. And I've, I've brought it up so many times. And I, I did you ever see the movie Carnal Knowledge? Of course, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, there's that iconic scene where Candace Bergen is sitting at the bar listening to the two guys talking, and the camera never leaves her. She, he, the whole conversation is from her reaction. I love and, that, and and that's it takes, you know, brave bravery on a filmmaker's part. I'm actually I'm not gonna say the movie, but there's a movie that I had just done, and I saw a cut recently, and 
one of the suggestions to the director was to do exactly that because too often in this, he's just doing traditional cutting. And I don't think viewers find that as interesting. I don't find it as interesting. There's something about an element of mystery, an element of, 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 you know, uniqueness or difference in the, in the style of telling it. And that's why I, for a first time filmmaker for Celine to do that. I mean, that just shows how, how bright her future is. You know, I, uh, I don't want to, we've talked about this movie so much on the show. It's been on our best list and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't want to give completely away the ending, which is very, very special. But uh, that last sequence when Greta breaks down uh, in your arms, uh, when Nora breaks down in Arthur's arms, is that's the one moment uh, from all the movies I saw this last year, and we see everything, that really, really got me. It really, really choked me up. Uh, what was it like shooting that scene with, Nora in that moment. Can I ask you a question? Why do you think it got you? Because it was unrequited and it was also about her sort of letting go of her origins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was like, it was almost like a commitment one way or the other. And mm -hmm. I felt like her, um, sort of coming to terms with being from Korea and her childhood and all that stuff is one of the reasons why I think it got to me. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I have a kid now, I have a four-year-old daughter and, uh, I think anyone who has children, you, you, you obviously like that, the cliches, you, you see things differently, obviously. Um, and it, for me, I, that moment got me too. Um, but I really, because having a daughter, you see like that child, perspective again you see what it is and there's just something i think we all feel as we get older that loss of childhood that loss of innocence all that kind of stuff and and for nora have to give up a whole nother world not just like her childhood next door it's just a whole nother world i think it's just a, a human instinct in us is to feel nothing but heartbreak for that because mm -hmm. we've all gone on through it um shooting it you know greta was so brilliant you know every single take she was right there on it um and you know both teo and my i think we were all just feeling that that melancholy and that sadness um it was a long night you know just re the honesty of it was it was a long night it was a brutal night of shooting we were on first street in new york on a friday night with hmm. you know drunk people yelling can i be an extra can i you know what are you <laughs> shooting what are you, blah, blah, blah. so you're trying to do this this you know the ultimate moment of this movie which is heartbreaking and sad and all this stuff and you have all this chaos going on that doesn't but, sound like New Yorkers. Yeah, right. I mean it's like <laughs> why does anyone shoot in New York? It's just like oh, God, no, never again. But we laid a track down, you know, we shot it. There's coverage obviously down there of them in their their moment, but we shot the entire scene uh with the dolly going down, following her all the way there, then playing that scene out, her coming back, embracing my arms and us going up up the stairs. And most of I'm sorry, we have a, a fire engine going off crazy at well, new york of course yeah new york exactly yeah, there it is. 
but but again it was this plan that uh celine and Chabier made and we all just rolled with it and again because especially at that point that was pretty much the end of the new york leg of the shoot and 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 Teo and I had already gotten to know each other by that point because we had shot the inside scene. Uh, you had three actors plus a director who all trusted each other and who were all on board with this. And Celine is not easy. Like she, you know, she pushed for a lot of different things during that take from all three of us dur during that scene from, from all three of us. And it was difficult, but it was rewarding. And, you know, I, I think again, from a distance, it's told that hug and walk up the steps. It's not up in our faces about it. Um, so it lets the viewer really make decisions about how they feel about it. You know, you, is it ever jarring shooting things out of sequence when you're, you're building to something and you're shooting that maybe a little bit earlier in the schedule? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been doing this a while now. So you start to it's, you start to get the, the, you know, I think every day as an actor, play it honestly and, and, you know, with what is given to you on the day. And sometimes even the chaos of the day will make the performance better. Maybe there was something to the chaos of that street that night that was frustrating to Greta and it made her break down more easily. You know, you never know. Um, you kind of play the cards that you're dealt on the day. Um, so the fact that it's out of order is kind of incidental. Luckily on this, actually, we were pretty close to, to being in order. Um, not much was out of order. Like I said, that scene at the end was the last day we shot in New York. So we got to shoot the ending on the ending of our shoot. So we were lucky with that. So uh, you did a movie in, I think it came out in 2020 that was also one of our favorite movies of that year, which was First Cow. Yeah, um, and we actually had uh, your co-star, Orion Lee, on the show back when the uh, the movie came out. Um, and it's such a funny and sweet and, you know, ultimately sad uh, movie that totally got me. Um, Kelly Reichart is a really interesting director, uh, writer-director. Um, she's got her own distinctive style and the the visuals, her her view of the world comes through in those shots describe the way she works um i mean she's not only all those things you've mentioned she's also just a brilliant person in general um i feel really lucky that i've gotten to know her over these years and we also just did showing up this year which was her, her film that came up came out this year um <clears throat> she just has a i think she just has a unique take on the world um it's hard to describe I, I think all our films, the, the uh, visual language, have different kind of uh, references and, and different goals. Uh, First Cow, I think she would describe as almost like a landscape film. Uh, and I think the only other film that she has that's close to that would be Meek's Cut Off, um, where it is about where the landscape is so vital to it because of the oppression of that landscape is kind of informing the events and, and what these char the characters are going through. Um, so I know when she was doing First Cow, she was looking at a lot of landscape art and a lot of landscape photography and other landscape filmmakers, and that, that informed it. But what Kelly is so, so brilliant at is 
she is the true definition of an auteur filmmaker and she's beholden to no one and she just does what she wants to do um she'll joke like i should do something that makes money someday but <laughs> she, i don't i don't think she has that bone in her body i don't think she could ever compromise the kind of cinema she wants to tell um and i think that's why critics and people who love film respect and love her work because they see somebody who is not playing by the rules who is willing to do whatever they want to tell unique stories um and getting to work with her on first cow because she is a brilliant artist but also just a cool person to be around um was such a joy uh you know, she, she, much like Celine, who Celine was in, is influenced by Kelly in a lot of ways, writes stories for actors to tell them as honestly as possible. Um, and even first, though first cow was set in a world that, you know, is so alien to us. Every situation, every scene is intended to be played as truthfully as possible, not reaching for moments, not forcing moments, but playing them with honesty and 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 truth um same with showing up uh same with all her other films um she's just yeah she's absolutely brilliant that first shot of the barge slowly yeah. going down the columbia river you know for me and steve and i steve will make fun of me sometimes um sometimes i'll bail on a movie like saltburn which I went back to and watched and I loved. And who knows whether it was the moment I was watching it, I just wasn't into it. That's often the case, right? You know, yeah. but sometimes a filmmaker just grabs you, like like past lives. That first scene, I was in. It, it was like, what is this movie? Um, with, with Kelly's movie, um, with seeing that barge just slowly, how she just kept the camera there and just let it go. Um, and you know, you read reviews and, and even, even the person reviewing will say, this isn't for everybody. Yeah. Right. There are people that just don't have, they just don't have it in their, in, in their head or they just don't have the patience to, to, to continue. But it was so great. But one thing I wanted to ask you when you're doing a movie like this and you're dirty, like, and I would think dirty, like to me watching it, it's like, you're dirty, you're smelly, you know, you know, um, are there certain things that an, an actor would not be allowed to do? Like, I can't imagine an actor showing up and he's wearing cologne because <laughs> that, oh, I would think that I that would know, wouldn't do that to set anyway, but, um, no, no, no. Kelly doesn't have rules like that. Like Kelly okay. didn't do any of the Celine stuff of like, you can't be Kelly really just like. It's funny. It's like, it's like you're on the clock and you're off the clock. You know, you're there on set, you do your job and, and then you don't. And I think that's a, another reason why, especially crews love to work. You know, you look at her crew list, it's all the same people over and over and over again. And they love to, you know, they take a pay cut to come back and work with her because it is such a family experience when, you, when you're working with her. Uh, there wasn't anything like that. Y- yeah. First cow was uncomfortable. We were out in the woods. It was, cold it was damp it was wet but this but i've been on sets that are similar or worse where i've been cold and wet and damp but first cow was also so much more comfortable than so many other jobs where you have 
all the luxuries because it was a family because doing the work was was fun to do um it just made it more pleasant so although you're cold and damp and miserable and 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 it's shitty at times you always felt like you were playing like it's like why you get in like you're playing frontier camp for for two months <laughs> i mean it, it's why you kids want to be actors to pretend and to, to do all that stuff. And like you're cooking in this shack and you're, you know, it's just, it's so lovely and it, it's so much, it's just so wonderful. And, you know, you're on a set where like wild deer are coming up because they're not afraid of humans. It was just, mm. there was something about that. And I said this to her when that, the moment I realized that that film was, was going to be special was sitting in this cabin after cookie is uh, injured and there's the Native American man doing Tai Chi outside. And the way they shot that, Chris Blavel basically like put Vaseline on the camera lens hmm. to give hmm. it this dreamy quality. And I don't usually look at playback or anything like that on set, but I had to go look at, at the monitor during that. I was just watching this thing that was made out of nothing, like Vaseline on a camera. Hmm. And seeing it on the screen and being like, say, turning to her and saying, this is really magical. We're making something magical here. And, you know, Kelly is the kind of the director who anytime she calls, I'll, I'll, I'll be, always be there. Yeah, always. So you use the term auteur um, yeah. and you've worked with, you know, a, a number, few. a number. Yeah. I, I Todd Haynes on Carol, certainly Adam McKay on, on the big short, Celine, Kelly Riker. What do... They all obviously have different styles, but what do they all have in common? What does every a tour have in common? Well, there's a bad a tours and they're good a tours. Oh yeah, <laughs> good a tours. What they all have in common is confidence in what they want to do. They all have a focus, and that doesn't mean at times they might be a little uncertain and like you try this, try that kind of thing, or like free. You know, like McKay is free. A lot of improv, a lot of trying different things, stuff like that. Um, but they know what they are aiming for. They know what the target is. They know the story they want to tell. Uh, the bad auteurs, they don't have that. They're, they're lost at sea. Uh, they're the ones who push for the histrionics when it's unwarranted because hmm. they, feel, they, they feel unsure of their writing or they feel they, that the moment isn't going to play in the silence or it's not going to play in this. So although a scene is written without it, the histrionics, they, they push for it. And that is when you see performances that are, that you look at sideways and you say, why is this happening? And, you know, for me, I, I have trouble with that, those performances, because I feel it's just unwarranted, but oftentimes in popular cinema, people respond to it because sometimes they have to feel like they're being beaten over the head by acting. To mm -hmm. feel like someone's acting. Um, but none of those directors you mentioned would ever, would ever reach for anything that isn't supposed to happen. So I'm going to ask you something um, that may sound silly. I, I read that you are a foodie. Yes. Oh, okay. yeah. Have you ever made an oily cake at I home? I made oily cakes during that. Yeah, during... Uh, during no, but like like after you were shooting... No, like no, no, not after. No, I, I'm, I'm a foodie, but I'm actually not that much of a sweet foodie. I'm much more savory foodie. So I, I made... 
uh, there's some uh, interviews I did about First Cow where Kelly gave me this Lewis and Clark kind of cookbook kind of based on what they ate. And I cooked <laughs> my way through it in preparation for the film. And it was driving my wife crazy because it was like every night in the dead of summer, we were having stews, like rabbit stew and then like venison stew. And she's like, enough, enough with the stew already. But uh, I still make those. And they, and right now in New York, it's freezing cold, snowy. So it's a great day for, for stew. But I, I don't I don't really do the, the sweet things. But yes, I made... During first cow, I made enough oily cakes to last a lifetime. <laughs> and the clafoutis, is that how you pronounce it? Clafouti, clafouti, yeah. Clafouti. Yeah. I made that on that, but I haven't made one since then, no. Yeah. Okay. Clafouti, so, really, really an easy thing to make, by the way. Like people who want to make a, a kind of like an interesting dessert and they're not great bakers, a clafouti is, is the way to go. So yeah. you grew up in Akron, Ohio. That's right. And I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. Hmm. Um, How long have you been away from Toledo for? 35 years now. Do you remember Raceway Park? Of course. I, I, went, I was at Raceway was, Park, a little My grandfather racing. was one of the owners of it. Who was? Harry Lublin. His grandfather. Oh, your grandfather. Harry Lublin. He was, the, he was one of the owners of it. My, my mother, is, she grew up in Toledo. I have a lot of family from Toledo. So I grew up being uh, a kid that was fixated on doing radio and I LA was the town I always wanted to live in so it all came true for me and I'm grateful for that in Akron when you were growing up did you dream of being an actor I did and it makes sense because you're on the west side of the state so you would go west to LA and I'm on the east side so I came to New York but right. I was doing, yeah I was doing like as a hobby you know I was doing stuff uh around I did some stuff at the Cleveland Playhouse and uh, a few theaters around Akron and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I mean, I don't know how, as far as radio, how you felt in Toledo, but certainly in Akron, it felt like the, the world of acting was too far away, mm -hmm. too unattainable. Um, and certainly the world of filmmaking was just like, I, you might as well, be speaking Mandarin to me because I, that's, I have no understanding of the world of filmmaking. So when I said I was going to go to theater school to my, my dad, you know, he suggested maybe try get a political science degree or, or, or instead, because probably ain't going to work out. And every, you know, bumbling thing that's happened to me in this journey has just truly been unexpected. And, and, you know, although it was what I wanted to do, I, I never imagined it would kind of go this way. You are the, uh, probably the second most famous person from Akron. Uh, there's a guy above you. Uh, there's gotta be a few above you. Uh, they're, they're probably. Are you talking about in acting? Are you talking about in acting? acting? I'm just talking about in life. Who, who are you talking about? LeBron James. Oh, well, yeah, that guy. He's probably the most. <laughs> and the list goes on. Chrissy Nine from The Pretenders. Uh, the guys from Black Keys. Carrie Coon, who's actually, you know, Carrie she's Coon. Great. Yeah. No, she's, she's great. Yeah. She's great. So listen. So this is how small Akron is, by the way. So Carrie Coon, her brother is married to my childhood best friend's sister. Wow. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's, it's, 
you know, Toledo, it's the same. It's just, it uh, is, it is very small, but, but were you a LeBron fan? Are you a LeBron fan? I was. Are you yeah, a basketball I, I, fan? Yes, I am. I was, and I am obviously, you know, Cleveland is forever indebted to LeBron. He brought, uh, the, the much needed title in any sport. We would have taken any sport. So, but we got that one. So he will, you know, always be, he was hated for a minute there. Yeah, but sure. He, mm -hmm. he did the right thing. He came back and he got that title. So that's huge. Um, and I remember this girl that I hung out with in uh, in high school. Her dad taught at St. Vincent, St. Mary's in Akron. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, probably my senior year of high school. Uh, yeah, it must have been my senior year where they were like, there's this kid at St. Vincent, St. Mary's. He's going to be the next Michael Jordan. And already at that point, people were talking about it and I went, she took me to a game and I saw him and like, obviously he was good, but you're watching high school basketball. Sure. So it's not like you can, you can really tell, but you're like, yes, he's clearly better than all these other high school basketball players. But I mean, I remember there was already discussion about his future back then. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the one I, I was talking to somebody and they're like, well, what do these awards actually mean? We were talking about, you know, the, the various awards that come out and AFI list and Gotham awards and independent spirit awards and all that stuff. Things. What, what does it all mean? And we follow them really close, but for me, what they mean is you're introducing movies that people might not have seen, mm -hmm. um, to, to a broader audience. And so I think all of the attention, uh, on the award circuit that, that you guys are getting right now, I think is bringing, more people to see past lives, which I think is like this, the upside of all those shows and all those awards. I hope so. Um, and I really like it. Like, you know, it's one thing for Barbie and, and Oppenheimer, you know, they have a life beyond without the awards, you know, they've already made a billion dollars without any award nominations, but for films like past lives last year, everything, everywhere, all the ones code, like every year, there's a few of them. Right. Uh, I think it's really special for them because it does allow, I, I even got a text last night from a friend of mine in Ohio who said someone came to her work and said, Oh, there's this new movie out called past lives. And she's like, I didn't even know you were in it. You're in it. I want to go see it. And I said, it's not new. It's been out for a year now, basically, <laughs> but that, but you're right. It is being still introduced to people. And I think that's good for indie, indie films to be in the awards conversation. I will say something that I'm probably not supposed to say, and okay. I'll probably never get a Gotham nomination again, because I'm going to say this. It does bum me out that the awards are becoming more and more homogenized, that you had something like the Gotham Awards that used to be something very special and unique that got rid of budget caps and now is just feels like it's becoming just another award show. Um, I wish there were more award shows that did really highlight indie films like the Indie Spirits and what the Gothams used to do. So hopefully there's a place for another awards show that will do that to come around. But I, I was really sad when, when the Gothams went in that direction. Have you been to the Academy Awards? Because I, I think if you guys get nominated, you would probably go, right? I went with Big Short. Um, oh, right. which was a lot of fun. You know, I was just talking to some friends of mine who are in Oppenheimer and this season's obviously different because there's really only three of us and, and we ha all haven't been at the same events all the time. So it is a little 
lonelier in a way. Whereas when you have like something like the Big Short or Oppenheimer, it's really a lot of fun because you're you're reuniting a big group of people. Um, so so that that was that made that experience because the, the award shows in general are not particularly fun. So um, like sit around, you're mm-hmm. locked out of a room. I, oftentimes you're treated kind of shittily, um, <laughs> uh, but. You know, it's good for the film, and I like being there to support and be part of the, the family. Um, so we'll see if if I get invited to the uh, the Academy Awards. I, I assume I will go, um, but we still have to get nominations. I think yeah. that's next week, right? Yeah, next week. Yep, I think next the nominations week. come out. Oh, I think I think Past Lives is going to be nominated. I think I so. so. I yeah, think I hope so. Um, um, We'll yeah, see. it's a it's a really special huh. movie, and I'm glad we were able to uh, to get you on. The movie is called Past Lives. It is available. You can rent it now on Apple. You can rent it on uh, Prime. It is just a it's a I magical. Get on your next flight, your next airplane flight. I know there, it's on air. There you go. There you go. Oh, sometimes the best way to watch a movie because you know I think something about being in there you cry more easily. So. You can be bawling on the airplane when there, you watch. There it. you go. There you go. Hey, congratulations on the movie. It's it's just absolutely a beautiful film, and you're a huge part of it. Great talking to you guys. And there you have it. There's John Magaro again. Great movie. Great <laughs> movie. Um, and I Lost in Translation is the best comparison I have for that movie because it's a very quiet movie, and there is there's a magical moment at the end. Like, mm-hmm. if you think about it, you remember the end of Lost in Translation where Bill mm-hmm. Murray whispers something in Scarlett Johansson's ear and we never will know exactly what it was. It has that kind of magical moment in it near the end of past lives. Yeah. Just like, just, I mean, just such nuanced performances, just so, so authentic. Yes. You know? Well, I think it's interesting that the director, Celine Song, didn't let them, uh, Greta Lee and uh, Teo Yu hug beforehand and didn't let John Magaro, uh, Arthur, uh, meet Teo before they actually met in real life. It's, it's, it's interesting because I think it lent more authenticity to those moments. Yeah. Now I read about it, but it didn't say in the review that it was, it was her choice. So I was going to ask him who, who came up with that? Because do you remember, um, the movie, The Sun? And I'm trying oh, yes, to, I do. I'm trying to remember. Uh, who, directed by Florian Zeller. So it was Florian Zeller that we had interviewed. Yes. And he told us that when Laura Dern came to Hugh Jackman, her ex-husband's apartment for the first time um um what's her name vanessa kirby was his new wife yes and that was the first time that they met yeah yeah no very uh, interesting device or rule to introduce this sort of freshness for actors yeah i can't wait to see what celine song does yeah uh next and by the way it's it's got to be nominated for best picture right yeah, Gotta absolutely. Uh, it's it's so good. Um, all right, there you have it. There's your Culture Pop podcast. Don't forget, if you're watching on YouTube, like the channel. Uh, leave us a, uh, a comment down below, maybe your favorite movie of 2023. Also, if you're listening on Apple, Spotify, uh, subscribe and uh, rate 
and review and all that stuff. Sue, great seeing you. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.